Thank you for downloading this resource from the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. To find out more, go to www.icmda.net slash resources. The views expressed in this resource do not necessarily reflect those of ICMDA. It is a great pleasure for me to be here, particularly at this ICMDA conference because it has been one of the privileges of life to be constantly involved with medical and dental colleagues in traveling around the planet, communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I arrived in Cambridge in 1962, not 1862, but (laughs) 1962, in my first week as a student, someone said to me, do you believe in God? And then they said, oh, I'm sorry, you're Irish, I forgot. (laughs) You Irish, you all believe in God, and you fight about it. I had heard the question before, but it nevertheless formed a strong intellectual challenge. Was my faith in God simply the product of heredity and environment? Or was Christianity true in an absolute sense? I felt I had to have a convincing answer since I was supposedly studying an intellectually respectable subject, mathematics. So I decided that perhaps the best way to go about it was to try to get to know people who did not share my worldview. And you will understand, ladies and gentlemen, the naivety of my thinking in those days. I imagined that all atheists would wear beards. And so I looked around, and sure enough, I saw someone in my year in mathematics, and he had a beard, and he was an atheist. And of course, that proved it, didn't it? I have since learned that some of the most delightful people have beards, some of whom are sitting in front of me at this very moment. So don't be ashamed of your beards, gentlemen. They add dignity to you. I even sported one myself for a maximum of 24 hours. (laughs) And that led to a lifelong interest in trying to understand what it's like not to have a Christian perspective. I spent 25 years traveling in Eastern Europe having learned German many years ago. And then in 1989, I started to go to Russia and have spent many months in the former Soviet Union discussing and debating in academies of science and universities the Christian faith, the big issues about God. And it is from that perspective that I come to you this week. Because in the West, at least, we are now being subject to a new form of atheistic attack. It is called the new atheism. And the only difference between it and the old atheism is its aggressiveness. Its logic is so simple, it is powerfully attractive. And it's this. 9-11 was caused by religion. It was fanatical religion, yes. But fanatical religion thrives on the edge of moderate religion. So all religion must go. 
How can we destroy religion? We'd use the cultural authority of science to do it. But what about morals and ethics? Don't worry, you do not need God to be good. Now that, in a nutshell, is the issue that's being faced by the West. And the pressure is such that many people have been paralyzed when it comes to the public articulation of their Christian faith. There are many people who've reached middle age and are at the top of their profession. They believe in God. They believe in Christ. They go to church. They have their private devotions, but they have long since lost the cutting edge of their public witness. They've been forced to privatize it. And that happens for several reasons, doesn't it? The first reason is professional pressure. We are experts in our fields by definition. And there isn't so much time for getting into the Word of God. And so we proceed in our education at two speeds, rapidly up in terms of our profession and our knowledge of it, but often not so rapidly in our knowledge of God and of His Word, so that our colleagues perceive the difference. And we're ashamed into silence. And it doesn't take the new atheist to silence us. Some of us have been silenced long since by that discrepancy. And I want to challenge you, all of you, and myself included. This is a day, ladies and gentlemen, where we have got to regain confidence in the Word of God and in the power of God. I'm glad to see that sitting before me there are people who are not from the West, who are not having to face the new atheists, and I'm thrilled to see so many students here who are bursting with energy to get the gospel out to the uttermost ends of the earth. And so in a sense, I want to address two kinds of audience. Those of us who've gone so far in our professions that we're beginning to realize that it costs to stand for Jesus Christ. And those of us who are just starting in the hope that God will so speak through his word in these four days that we shall be inspired to invest our lives in Jesus Christ without compromise and with a single-mindedness that carries conviction to the very end of the earth. And that is why we are going to think about the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Because Joseph was a man who learned above all things to tap into the infinite resources of God. Our conference title is Resources Unlimited, with the un in brackets you will have noticed. And it's those brackets that create the problem. Because again, our crisis of confidence, and I don't mean the crisis of confidence in the NHS in Britain. I mean the crisis of spiritual confidence goes back inevitably to our concept of who God is and what those resources are that he has promised to us.
And I like your title very much indeed. Because Joseph was a person against whom life had thrown many almost insuperable difficulties. He grew up in a family where there was a love-hate tension. And his brothers hated him so much for his dreams that they sold him as a slave down into Egypt. And one of the major biblical comments on him we find not in Genesis, but in Psalm 105. It is a summary, and I want to read it to you. Psalm 105, starting in verse 16. When God summoned a famine on the land, that is the land of Canaan, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until... What he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And that seems to me to be the superscript that describes the heart issue of Joseph's life. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent, that is, Pharaoh had released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. And so we are going to study the life of a man who was tested by the word of the Lord. And each one of us who has made public confession to Jesus Christ as Lord, will find ourselves being tested. In most areas of life, tests involve pressure. The strength of a girder that holds this building can only be tested if it's put under more pressure than the weight of the roof that it is designed to hold. And I say that not to discourage, but to encourage you. Because I suspect that many of you are sitting here and you're feeling a lot of pressure. Your work, with its vast responsibility in medicine and in dentistry, carries great pressure. Your ethical responsibilities are immense. You're dealing quite literally, in matters of life and death every day. And the question of resource crops up all the time. And not simply how many intensive care beds you've got, but the inner resource, emotionally, spiritually, morally, to get the resource to fight the battles that enable you to do your work with with integrity and with commitment and to simultaneously be a Christian and witness for Christ 
in a sphere where, at least in some countries, it is becoming very difficult indeed to do so and to work out how to do so. So perhaps the story of Joseph will be an encouragement to us. He wasn't a medic, as you'll have noticed. And nor am I. But we're all human beings involved in the same thing. And the principles are essentially the same. And it is my trust that we shall be able to encourage one another as we see how from apparently hopeless circumstances where Joseph was deprived of the resource of love in his family, who was deprived of his own culture and background because he was sent as a slave as a young man to Egypt, nonetheless found in God a sufficient resource to be able to maintain a balance amidst spectacular unfairness of treatment. And not only that, became one of the world's premier witnesses to God, to the leader of the greatest empire in the then world, the empire of Egypt, the land of Tutankhamun, the land of Abu Simbel, the land of the pharaohs and the magnificent art and culture that fills our museums with wonderful treasures. And a young man who was a believer in God eventually took over the reins of that nation. It happened, ladies and gentlemen. This is no myth. And so from hopeless-seeming beginnings, God raised him up and prepared him for that moment of witness when he stood before the most powerful man on earth and proclaimed his faith in God. Now, we may not be so spectacular, but the issue is the same. God wants to prepare you and me at all levels of our profession and in our family lives to be a witness for God. And perhaps we shall see some of the resources that Joseph drew on so that he was able with integrity to proclaim the limitlessness of God. Now, I believe in big pictures. And the story of Joseph is the longest story in the book of Genesis. It occupies the chapters from 36 to 50. And so it is a very, very important and detailed story. And so I want us to just think for a moment of its context in Genesis. And I'm delighted, you see, that at least the students here who were here for the first part of this conference were able to listen to Dr. Andrew Turkanik expounding the beginning of this book. I'm going to talk to you about the end of the book. But we weren't all here to listen to Andrew. And so I'm going to just very briefly summarize the entire book of Genesis in just a few minutes. So if you'd fasten your safety belts, ladies and gentlemen, we shall take off.
It's important that we do this because we need to know who the God is that Joseph trusted, who the God is that Joseph proclaimed. That becomes a crucial question in the world of today. Now, the book of Genesis falls into six parts. The first half of it is three major stories, all of which focus on the creation of human beings from three different points of view. The second half of the book focuses on three major families. So let's look at it very briefly. The first chapter tells us a great deal about God, that there is a God, that there was a beginning of this universe. It came to be, but God did not come to be. In the beginning, God already was, as John tells us. In the beginning was the Word. All things were made by him, that is, came to be by him. So the first thing is that Joseph believed in an eternal God. I can't resist a little aside here, because the new atheists think they've got an insuperable argument against God. They say, you know, if you believe that God created the universe, well, that's absurd, really, isn't it? Because you'll have to ask the question, who created God? And then you'll have to ask, who created the who that created God? And so it will go back forever. How absurd that is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as I said to Richard Dawkins in my debate with him, if you ask the question, who created God, it shows you believe in a created God, doesn't it? If Richard Dawkins had called his book The Created God's Delusion, I don't think it would have sold many copies. Because none of us believes in a created God, do we? To ask the question, who created God, shows a number of things, doesn't it? It shows that you cannot conceive of the eternal. Oh, but wait a minute, Richard Dawkins. You believe, don't you, that the universe created you? So let's use your argument on that. We have every right then to ask you, who created the universe? But he won't allow that question, will he? The point is that all questioning stops somewhere. You either stop with an eternal God or you stop with matter and energy. And ladies and gentlemen, the battle for your mind and your witness in society today is precisely there. Do we give in to the pressure that tells us that matter and energy are all that exist? and have created us ultimately? Or do we believe in God? And if we do, let us not be ashamed of it. It's that shame that is the most potent power for paralysis in the contemporary world today. The first section of Genesis has the repeated phrase, and God said... Summarized in the New Testament this way. In the beginning was the Word. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God. 
And that repeated phrase gets us to the heart of its message. And that is this. The universe exists because of word. It doesn't exist because of a mindless, unguided process. There is word. Whatever we think of the mechanisms, that's another matter altogether. The crucial thing is that there is word. I'd love to have an hour to develop that concept. We have lived in science to the age where we've seen that at the heart of every one of the 10 trillion cells of your body, there is a text, the longest word known to humanity. It's called the human genome. And whatever the mechanism, it's a text. And every one of us know that texts, whatever the mechanisms, however automatic required to produce them, texts find their origin only in intelligence. You are a text. And to reduce human life and human expression and artistic ability to say nothing of poetic and literary ability, to reduce human life to a mere product of chance and necessity is to demean humanity. And Genesis tells us in this magnificent opening that God made human beings in his own image. That's what Joseph believed. Have you ever thought of what it means? The universe wasn't made in God's image, you know. It shows his glory. It wasn't made in his image. You were. And that means in the order of importance, you're more important than a galaxy. What nonsense they talk, who tell us we're so tiny, geometrically. Well, we are. We're very tiny, except on a logarithmic scale. We're roughly halfway between the size of the atom and the size of the universe. But that's a different matter. You don't measure size and importance. You don't measure importance in terms of size. We need to let that dignity settle on us, don't we? Because one of the biggest battles in our society is not simply over the status of the universe. It's over the status of your life and mine. What am I? Who am I? And Joseph believed in his heart that this universe was the product of an intelligent personal God. It's vastly important. The second part of Genesis has to do with the Word of God, but not now in creation. Now it's a question of the definition of life and what it means to be a moral and a spiritual being. And the whole story turns, as you know, around whether or not human beings were prepared to trust the Word of God. And when the enemy came and said, has God really said you shan't eat of all the trees of the garden? Well, of course, he'd say things like that. He wants to suppress you and depress you and remove life from you because he knows in the day you eat, you will know good and evil. You know everything. Give up this notion of God and go for it. The lie started then. It is the basic premise of so much in our society. But God had said, don't eat that. Not because God was trying to keep them down, but because God had conferred on them the supreme dignity of being moral beings made in his image, capable of saying no. 
which means they were capable of saying yes. Oh, what a magnificent thing this is, isn't it? All kinds of profound philosophical problems it raises. But you know, all the philosophical problems in the world don't stop some of us having children, do they? And bringing a being into the world who didn't ask to be born, and knowing that that child may grow up to reject us. We still do it, don't we? Why is that? Because love is such a valuable thing. And God took the same risk, if I might put it that way, without being irreverent, as we do as parents, to give life to something other than ourselves that can choose. And Joseph believed that. And we shall see how that deep-seated sense of his moral status before God, as well as his created status, worked in his life in one particular incident connected with the beauty of the woman in whose house he was working. That's the second part of Genesis. It deals with the way in which sin entered into the world and God's provision of sin and gives a promise, not simply that God would triumph, that was never in doubt, but this spectacular promise that the seed of the woman, that is, humans would triumph. And we now know in this Christian era that it was referring to the triumph of one human specifically, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Then there came the third section. That's the story of Noah. You remember that? How God judged the world and then brought Noah and his family in an ark through to a new world. And you can summarize it all very easily, can't you? The three pillars of Christian theology, creation, the fallen redemption, and then the story of Noah. Well, let me quote our Lord on it. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. It is our hope our eschatological hope for the return of Christ. And so you've got creation, the fallen redemption, and the return pictured in that way and given their foundations in the very first book in the Bible. And then we turn to family life. And we have three major stories in Genesis. It's very easy to remember them. I am the God of Abram, of Isaac, and Jacob. Three names. And the second half, chapter 10, verse 1 to 25, 11, is the story of Abraham and ends with his death. Chapter 25, verse 12 to 35, 29, is the story of Isaac and his sons and ends with Isaac's death. And chapter 36, 1 to chapter 50, is the story of Jacob and his sons, and ends with Jacob's death and the death of Joseph. So it's three and three. It's very easy to remember. But it's very important to see what these stories are about, isn't it? So that we can see what the story of Joseph is doing in this book. The second half begins in Babylon. It begins with Abram being called by God. The God of glory appeared to our father Abram. Babylon was a spectacular culture and city. It had a fundamental philosophy, which is this. Come, let us make 
a city and a tower that it should reach to heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves that we should not be scattered abroad on the face of the earth. It was an expression in terms of the most advanced science and engineering and art to create an identity independently of God. And it raises the big question, doesn't it? Identity. All of us want to have an identity, don't we? But how do we get it? We get restless, don't we, sometimes, in our ambition. And Genesis will analyze two sets of motivations that determine the way life can go. The first is this, that when everything's peeled away from the onion that is my life, deep in my heart there settles an attitude of, I'm going to create my own identity. God said to this man, Abram, I want you to come out from that and go on a journey to me, and I will make your name great. There's the difference, isn't it? Either I try to make my own name great, or I am content with the identity that God gives me. All of us, isn't it true? On times, we ask deep questions about our identity. We find ourselves not so gifted as the next person. They have so many talents, we seem to struggle, and so on and so on. The comparisons can run wild in our hearts and minds, and we end up asking, who am I really? And just as for Abram, it was a battle to reach his identity with God, so it is for me. Who am I? Who was Joseph? Who was Abram? One of the strands in this story is this. Abram's held out to us as the father of faith. Because, you see, humanity went wrong when human beings were not prepared to trust God and what he said. So the way back is going to be, logically, when human beings learn once again to trust God. Oh, that's what's under pressure, ladies and gentlemen. Lots of people will work for God. And it's important to work for God. But what about trusting God? To have confidence in God. And Abram trusted God for his identity. Can be difficult, can't it? And a story floats into my mind. It happened in this country many years ago. Because I love this country. I'm so thrilled to be here after exactly 40 years of marriage because it was to this country of Austria that we first came 40 years ago. But there's one incident I shall never, ever forget. I was speaking on this matter of identity from another scripture. And when I'd finished, a young woman came walking up in the middle, and she turned and faced the audience and raised her face like that. She was beautiful. At least one half of her face was beautiful. And the other half was massively disfigured by a birth accident. And very quietly, she said, I'm not a fatalist, you know, so don't misunderstand me. But I want publicly to tell you that today, for the first time in my life, I can accept the way the Lord allowed me to be. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. That's big stuff, ladies and gentlemen, isn't it? And you know, some of us here, we've got all the professional qualifications in the world. But in our hearts, in our hearts, there's that wrestling for an identity. That's what this story is going to be about. Learning to trust God. It's so easy, apparently, to trust God when everything goes well. But Abram had to learn to trust God, and Joseph had to learn to trust God. And he had to do it when all the ordinary props of life were swept from under his feet. 
And it can be such an encouragement to us because we're all damaged people, really, aren't we? We're all damaged people, and we all need the encouragement of God's Word. What a magnificent thing it is when we look inside our hearts and see the damage and nevertheless can say with complete conviction that God loves us, that Jesus loves us. I'm not ashamed to say that because it's the biggest thing in life that there's a God who loves me. It would be a shame to be quiet about it, wouldn't it? And not to share it with other people. And so Genesis takes up next the story of Jacob and his sons. And they learn not only the lessons of faith, but the lessons of God's government in life. Jacob, on his first night out from home, sees a ladder that's going from heaven and discovers to his amazement the angels ascending and descending on it. And he says, surely God is in this place. That is at the bottom of the ladder. Please check your translations, not the top of the ladder. Jacob knew that God was at the top of the ladder. That wasn't new. The thing that was new, that was God, was at the bottom. Right next to him, on his first night out from home, God was there, willing to be his sovereign Lord and guide. He didn't grasp it, alas and spent a large part of his life playing with God at a distance, didn't realize what God was offering him to be his guide. And our fundamental confession, ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you of it, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. How real is it? It was a difficult path for Jacob. It took a very long time, and that's encouraging too, because God is patient with us. But you know, and I close with this, there's a puzzle, isn't there? Because Abram was told that in him, that is in his son, the whole nations of the world would be blessed. And here we are far into the book of Genesis. And what have we got? A little group of nomads trundling around the desert and getting into trouble and fighting and squabbling with each other. What on earth is this? She really seriously believed that that has anything to do with the existence of a God who is transcendent and in control of the universe, do you? Ah, but now, we need this last story in Genesis to get an idea of the scale. Because now suddenly, one of that nation, Joseph, is sold as a slave by his hating brothers down to Egypt. And instead of being destroyed by self-pity, Through his faith in God, he masters the situation. And through suffering, he learns the lessons that will inevitably bring him to glory and witnesses to Pharaoh. And at that moment in history, just like the Olympic 100 meters runner, the whole of his life has been geared to 9.67 seconds, if that's the right figure. The whole of his life poured into those few seconds. So Joseph having been trained, steps onto the world stage and saves the world quite literally from starvation. He did it literally, but you'd be blind not to see the symbolism and the pointers way beyond it, wouldn't you? Because his life, as the New Testament tells us, points beyond itself. That hatred of the brothers who were the patriarchs was used centuries later by another young man who stood in Jerusalem with consummate courage, 
and on trial for his life, Stephen told the Sanhedrin as he went through their history, Joseph, Moses, the prophets, you rejected the lot. The very men that saved you, like Moses and Joseph, you rejected them. And now you've done the same with Jesus. And when he got to that point, his life was abruptly terminated under the hail of stones that they threw at him. And he became the first Christian martyr. Because Joseph's life points beyond itself, ladies and gentlemen. He suffered and came to glory. And his life, although he didn't know Jesus in that sense, his life was so modeled on his future Lord that he becomes a thought model for us of how to respond to Jesus Christ. Joseph gained his authority by suffering first and then coming to power. And we're going to study something else, and it's this. What do you do with power when you've got it? And we're going to analyze one of the most amazing things in all of world literature, and that is this. How a man reaches the top of power and uses it so sensitively that he brings about reconciliation of a dysfunctional family. But that's for again. This will have to do for this morning. May God bless us. And I ask you to read the story of Joseph in Genesis. I haven't time to read it all for you. And pray that God will speak to us. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I can talk up here. But if God doesn't deign to speak to us in these days, I'd have wasted my time and so will you. And I want each of us to deliberately, deliberately say, God, I want to know by the time these days are finished that you have spoken to me. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the ultimate authentication of God is hearing his voice through his word. And we desperately need it in order to regain the confidence to go out and face the world that doesn't know him.